Hi and welcome back. This is Disability Saves the World with Dr. Fadi Shinuda. I am Fadi Shinuda. This podcast brings you insights from leading experts in disability and math studies from around the world. You'll hear about the research and work of disabled scholars, activists, artists, and our allies. You'll also get some insight into their lives, their favorite non-DS activities, hobbies, and adventures. Most importantly, however, you'll get to hear how they think disability can save the world. My name again is Fadi Shinuda. I use he, him pronouns, and I am an assistant professor in the Pauline Jewett Institute of Women's and Gender Studies at Carleton University on unceded Algonquin territory. On today's show, I am joined by Dr. Merrick Pilling, who uses he, him pronouns. Merrick is an assistant professor of Women's and Gender Studies at the University of Windsor. I'm excited to speak to him about his two books, The Monograph, Queer and Trans Madness, Struggles for Social Justice, and Interrogating Psychiatric Narratives of Madness, Documented Lives, co-edited with Dr. Andrea Daly. Please join Merrick on June 12th at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for the launch of Queer and Trans Madness. The link to register to this event is in the description. And so in this episode, Merrick and I discuss his work. At that time, when I first encountered Mad Studies, I did not see a lot of representation of racialized voices and experiences, and I did not see much, if any, representation of queer and trans And so that really led to my interest in these intersections. And his life outside of academia. Something that brings me joy is to grow plants from seeds or to be on trails far away from the city or next to large bodies of water. And I get to ask him how he thinks disability can save the world. Hi, Merrick. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Hi, Shady. Thanks for having me. I want to jump right into the first segment. Um, It's called Inside the Project, the Research, the Work, the Art. Um, I want to know how you got, how you came to disability studies, how you came to MAD studies. Yeah, uh, so I came to MAD studies through the Academy. My first encounter with it was in Jeffrey Rayom's course in 2008 when I was a PhD student. Um, So I was really excited by math studies because it spoke to some of my lived experiences in ways that mainstream thinking about mental health and illness really did not. Um, So just as one example, my cousin died by suicide um, and I really felt ill at ease um, with the way that her struggles and her death were framed and taken up. And so when I encountered MAD studies, I felt like this really offered another way of seeing things because it counters this kind of individualized deficit model. And, um, you know, that model that would say there's something wrong with you biologically as an individual, and that's why you are the way that you are. And so MAD studies kind of gives us back the context. It looks at structural violence and the way that that causes distress. And it also looks at the violence of the psychiatric institution itself and the ways that that caused distress. Well, thank you for sharing sharing that with us. I mean, it's clearly a very powerful story. Um, And I'm not surprised that 
Jeffrey was your introduction because he seems to be so many of our introduction, especially those of us who studied in Ontario and in Canada. Um, uh, what did MAD studies provide you that I think other theoretical perspectives couldn't? Was there something specific about um, the theoretical approach that you found um, more fulfilling to do the work through that, through that analysis, through that narrative? Yeah, I think what I mentioned in terms of the context that MAD studies gives us. So you know, like mainstream mental health research really boils it down to this kind of biological perspective. It's a deficit model, et cetera. And so I feel like MAD studies disrupts that. Um, and like I said, it kind of gives us back the context in terms of looking at the structural picture and how that impacts distress. Um, and also because it does give us the lens to examine psychiatric violence itself, right? Whereas you won't find that in mainstream mental health research. So you have two books uh, that are now out, um, Queer and Trans Madness, Struggles for Social Justice and Interrogating Psychiatric Narratives of Madness, Documented Lives. Um, can you tell us about the monograph, the solo book, how it came about and what it is you argue in it? Yes. So. Um, that book really comes out of, or kind of the seeds were planted when I took that course with Jeffrey Rayom as a PhD student. Um, because at that time, when I first encountered MAD studies, I did not see a lot of representation of racialized voices and experiences. And I did not see much, if any, representation of queer and trans. Uh, voices and experiences. And I found that really odd because I knew that there was so much resistance in queer and trans communities to the pathologization of queerness and transness. And so that really led to my interest in these intersections. Um, but at the same time, MAD studies really allowed me to see some of the issues with the way that gay and lesbian as well as queer and trans activists have resisted psychiatry and the ways that they have resisted pathologization. So, and there are others who have written about this since. So Regina Kunzel, Helen Svanler, Sarah Carr, Kat, Fitzpat Kat Fitzpatrick and Gigi Baraka. Uh, just to name a few, but um, there's this problematic distancing that happens. So this idea that we trans and queer people, we're not mentally ill, and that's the hook that we're going to hang our activist strategy on. And of course, there's sanism that's embedded in that position. And it's also a really narrow way of looking at things because it focuses on specific diagnoses. So historically, that was the diagnosis of homosexuality and gender identity disorder. Currently, it's the diagnosis of gender dysphoria. But it really begs the question, you know, what about the rest of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders? Um, you know, what about the biomedical model as a whole? And so my book shows the ways in which queer and trans people are pathologized and psychiatrized beyond just these diagnoses that target us. 
um, and why that's a problem and that we need mad studies to help us broaden the critique to be about the biomedical model of mental illness as a whole and not just these really specific diagnoses. You know, I have this section in my in my class where there's like these two images that I show. One of them is of um, it's an old suffragette picture where um, the suffragette is in a cage with someone who's quote unquote a lunatic and another person who's a convict. And it's a it's a metaphor about how or it's an I guess illustration of like how how dare women be compared to these individuals and not have the vote right similarly to them. And, and similarly, I have another photo that I show where there's a protest sign that says homo is healthy, right? And both of these ideas, these like claims to like further humanity or claims to um, um, a, a kind of brushing aside or disregard of disability or difference in order to claim sort of like rights or entitlement. And similarly to what you were saying, I think, um, you know, those reify normalcy, right, ends up really being harmful. So the fact that your book looks at like how the entire medical practice, the entire biomedical model needs to be addressed, reconsidered, restructured is wonderful. I know from many of my students, I've already picked up the book and are reading it as part of their comps. So thank you for writing it. That's awesome to hear. So tell me about the second book. I know it came out in November um, and it's co-edited with Dr. Andrea Daly um, and it's titled Interrogating Psychiatric Narratives of Madness, Documented Lives. So how did that co-edited collection come about? So that book is based on a project for which Dr. Andrea Daly um, was the principal investigator. So that project was a retrospective chart review project. We reviewed 161 psychiatric inpatient charts with discharge dates between 2013 and 2016 to look at the way documentation practices tell a story about gender, but using an intersectional lens that also considers race, class, sexuality, and disability. So each chapter of the book is written by members of that research team. And the book was edited, as I said, by Dr. Daly and myself. Um, so my chapter in the book is called Sexual Violence and Psychosis, Intersections of Rape Culture, Sanism, and Anti-Black Sanism in Psychiatric Inpatient Chart Documentation. I wondered in doing this kind of work for as long as you have, um, I wonder about the response that you get. I wonder about what it's like to, to do this kind of work in the space that you're occupying now in women and gender studies. Yeah, what, what has been the reception? So my current position in women's and gender studies has been very open and receptive to the work that I do. Also, when I was originally doing this work, it was within the Gender Feminist and Women's Studies program at York University. So Women's and Gender Studies has been a very open place to do this work, um, but generally speaking, um, and I talk about this in Queer and Trans Madness, any work that challenges the biomedical model of mental illness is always met with a lot of resistance and a lot of hostility. Um, I think we are really bombarded with the medical model um, and a lot of times people interpret what I'm saying as that, you know, experiences of mental distress don't exist. So I have a section in the book that is called mental distress is real or something like that, right? Because that's not what I'm arguing. And I understand the response 
and the emotional response to it, right? Because people can feel like their own experiences or the experiences of people they love are being invalidated somehow. Exactly. Um, so I really was careful in the book to try and make it clear that that's not what I'm arguing. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what the response is to the book, I guess, <laughs> if I succeeded in making that clear or not. But I think, but I think it's important for like listeners and people who come to this podcast later on to know like that, like those, you know, those distinctions are important, right? That we're not denying that people um, experience pain right? And that pain that might be, you know, mental or experiences that are, that, you know, Brenda LaFrancois talks about mental anguish, right? That it's addressed holistically, right? In in the introduction of Mad Matters, she says this, or Menzies, uh, LaFrancois, and Ryum say this. Um, uh, and to me, I think it's it's not just like how we conceptualize it, but also how it's, we respond to it, right? And so, and of course, a lot of people have struggled so long to get diagnosed in order to get treatment. And I think that's also why they value it so much and are very terrified when someone comes around and says, you know, it's bad, it's dangerous, it's unhelpful, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And the way that we conceptualize it shapes the way that we respond to it, right? Exactly, yeah. So I wondered if you could um, tell us a little bit about what you learn in the process of publishing um, these two volumes. I feel like I still have a lot to learn in terms of how academic publishing works, but I do want to mention um, the hideously expensive price of both books. Um, I'm disappointed in the price because it puts these works outside the reach of people outside of academia. Um, you know, people who don't have access to university libraries, essentially, and that was not what I wanted for either of these books. Um, I don't profit from this either, by the way. Um, but this represents a bigger problem in academic publishing. And if there are people listening who publish academically, um, who have thoughts about how to effectively navigate or challenge some of these issues, I would definitely love to hear from them. And I also always request that people um, ask their public libraries to carry the books. So uh, not their institutional libraries, but their public libraries, because it will just make it that much more, just marginally more accessible to people who don't have access to university libraries. Well, I think that's a wonderful intervention and one I've never heard before to request the public library to, to hold it. Yeah, I'll do that here in Ottawa. That seems like something that I can do. A shout out to Lori Ross for that suggestion. <laughs> Yay, Lori Ross, yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, let's move on to segment two, uh, the middle or the liminal. And speaking of Lori Ross, maybe she is your academic crush, maybe not. But who is the person that you are you reading now that you just can't stop reading or someone who you've always really admired um, in the field? I don't know if this is an academic crush, but um, I can say that I'm really looking forward to Sammy Schalk's new book, Black Disability Politics. And um, I also love that she twerked on stage with Lizzo. Yes, I, I feel like that should be an intro to disability studies like classes. Be like um, <laughs> one of your professors is a superstar <laughs> leader in the field. And Merrick, do you have um, any um, advice for younger academics? So I tend to give really practical advice. Um, the program 
that I work in doesn't have a graduate program. So generally when I'm giving advice, it's to undergraduate students who are considering whether they want to pursue grad studies. My best advice for people who want to enter academia is to have a realistic picture of what the current job market is like, i.e. a hellscape. Also, <laughs> just saying. Yep. Also, I provide as much information as possible on how academia works. This information is not readily available. And there's this assumption that you will just know things somehow. Yeah. Maybe a lot of people who pursue academia have academics for parents and, and that's how they know, I don't know. Um, but if that's not the case for you, there's just a lot of things you don't even know that you need to know, if that makes sense. And so, you know, I always think of this example for myself. It took me a very long time before I learned the difference between what is an assistant professor, professor and what's an associate professor. So, you know, given that, I wouldn't have been able to even look at job ads and distinguish when am I eligible to apply for, right? So it's just a very practical and fairly simple thing. Um, and I remember feeling really embarrassed when I did learn what the difference was um, in kind of a harsh way, actually. <laughs> but, but at the same time, there's just this information isn't really out there, right? And yeah. so if you're not, if you don't have a strong mentor, if you're not connected to, you know, to a network of senior scholars, then it can be really hard to figure out just the basics of how, how things work or what information you might even be lacking. So I just aim to be really forthcoming and supportive of other academics or would-be academics by sharing as much information as possible to try and demystify academia. And just also being very realistic about the job market. Um, and I also advise students to seek strong mentors when possible, because personally, I found that that really makes all the difference in surviving academia. And again, shout out to Lori Ross on that one. <laughs> yeah, Lori Ross, Jeffrey Ryum. I feel like there's like been really important people in, um, I feel like I can say that we're, we're both emerging scholars, if I can use that and not and not sound horrible, um, but like, you know, I feel like there have been lots of people who've supported our generation. And so, um, yeah, it's kind of wonderful that we've had them. I really appreciate all that feedback. And I think, you know, uh, concrete feedback is really important. I remember when I went to the UK, I also learned that they don't call them assistant associate there, right? It's lecturer, senior lecturer, and a whole bunch of other reader, Right. So it's not even that um, it's the same every place that you go. Yeah. So let's move outside the project of research of the art. We're in segment three now. Um, who is the most famous person you've met and what was it like? I haven't really met that many famous people, but I sort of met the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Oh, wow. <laughs> I got autographs from them. Uh, it would have been probably late 90s or early 2000s when they were doing a free concert downtown Toronto and an interview with a radio station. So, yeah. Cool. Um, do you carry around an ex obscure fact? And what is that obscure fact? Honestly, I cannot retain information like that. <laughs> it just it goes in one ear and out the other. 
yesterday I was trying to remember the postal code for my previous apartment and I haven't like it was like three months ago I moved and the information is just gone my brain just disposes of it when I don't <laughs> so not even so no obscure facts and not even like general important information sometimes <laughs> exactly it's just erased I feel like people like most people don't answer this question on the podcast it's just because I'm really like obscure facts so that's why that's why this question is there um, what are you reading now besides, um, of course, your own work, but what are you reading? <laughs> Just sitting at home reading my own reading work. Book. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I've been reading a ton of fiction lately. It's really nice. Um, so some of the things on my coffee table are People Change by Vivek Shreya, Little Fish by Casey Platt, Five Little Indians by Michelle Good, and Butter Honey Pig Bread by Francesca Ecclesi. And wow. so far, amazing. That's great. Are you reading them all at the same time or you finish them or do you pick one at a time? And two of them I'm about halfway through, just kind of switching back and forth. Awesome. And um, is there a hobby that you do um, or is there something that you do that brings you joy? <laughs> the question about hobbies makes me think of awkward Tinder dates. <laughs> I feel like. <laughs> um or like a lady of leisure um <laughs> ladies who lunch yeah <laughs> someone who's not being ground into a fine dust by capitalism <laughs> uh no but uh something that brings me joy is to grow plants from seeds or to be on trails far away from the city or next to large bodies of water wonderful and finally how do you think disability can save the world? There is such a huge number of disabled people, but there are so many things that stand in the way of claiming disabled identity, including things like the narrow way that disability is defined by the state and by various institutions to limit benefits. Also the way that some disabilities are invisibilized by mainstream understandings of what disability is and how that stands in the way of people even realizing that the word disability applies to them. So I'm thinking of things like vestibular issues, chronic back pain, endometriosis. These are just a few examples of what could be very long. And there's so many things that stand in the way of discovering a disability justice politic. We're all so bombarded with the medical model of disability and we are all bombarded with this very ableist way of understanding our own bodies and the bodies of those around us. But if everyone who was sick, chronically ill and disabled claimed that identity, connected with disabled community and took on a disability justice politic, there would be no stopping us. Thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me, Katie. Thanks again to Dr. Merrick Pilling for coming on the show. Get in touch by sending us an email at disabilitysavestheworld@gmail.com. at gmail.com. If you're interested in learning more about me, check out my website, fadieshnuda.com. This podcast is hosted, produced by me, Fadi Shnuda, and edited by Yasmina Garcia. Thank you for listening and see you next time on Disability Saves the World. Yeah.